right, this hearing will come to order. Let me welcome you all to the fourth hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 115th Congress. I truly appreciate your willingness to participate in uh, today's hearing. And uh, it's, uh, it's been the third hearing in our four-part series, though, on a, uh, in the subcommittee to address various aspects of U.S.-Asia policy and the Pacific region, from security challenges to economic uh, engagement to today's topic, which is, of course, projecting our values of democracy, human rights, and accountability throughout the region. These hearings will also inform new legislation called the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, which will seek to build a long-term vision for United States policy toward the Asia-Pacific region. At our first hearing on March 29th, we focused on the growing security challenges in the Asia-Pacific, including North Korea, Uh, South China Sea, and terrorism in Southeast Asia. At that hearing, Randy Forbes, a former congressman from Virginia and the chair of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Sea Power and Projection Forces, observed the following. In the coming decades, this is the region where the largest armies in the world will camp. This is the region where the most powerful navies in the world will gather. This is the region where over one-half of the world's commerce will take place and two-thirds will travel. This is the region where a maritime superhighway linking the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia, Australia, Northeast Asia, and the United States begins. This is the region where the two superpowers will compete to determine which world order will prevail. This is the region where the seeds of conflict that could most engulf the world will probably be planted. We agreed at that hearing that we must strengthen U.S. defense posture and increase engagement with our allies and to counter these threats. At our second hearing on May 24th, we focused on the importance of U.S. economic leadership in the Asia-Pacific. At that hearing, uh, Tammy Overby, Senior Vice President for Asia at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, observed the following. The Asia-Pacific region is critical to current and future U.S. economic growth, competitiveness, and job creation. U.S. exporters, whether large or small companies producing goods and services or farmers and ranchers exporting commodities, need access to these fast-growing economies and the rising pool of consumers. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the global middle class will expand from $1.8 billion in 2009 to $3.2 billion by 2020 and $4.9 billion by 2030. Most of this growth is in Asia. In fact, Asia's middle class consumers will represent 66% of the global middle class population and 59% of middle class consumption by 2030, doubling these shares since 2009. We agreed at that hearing that while the administration and Congress might differ on global trade strategy, we cannot ignore the fundamental fact that it is the Asia-Pacific region that will be critical for the U.S. economy to grow and for the American people to prosper through trade opportunities. Today's hearing will examine perhaps the most underappreciated part of our presence in the Asia-Pacific and worldwide, promoting our values of human rights, the rule of law, and accountability. On December 10, 1986, President Ronald Reagan, in his speech declaring Human Rights Day, said the following. At birth, our country was christened with a declaration that spoke of self-evident truths, the foremost of which was that each and every individual is endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. And our creed as Americans is that these rights, these human rights, are the property of every man, woman, and child on this planet, and that a violation of human rights anywhere is the business of free people everywhere. I believe that statement still holds true today, as it did then, and it must form an integral part of our nation's foreign policy. I look forward to our distinguished panel addressing how we can advance these American values in the Asia-Pacific, and now I'll turn it over to our ranking member, Senator Markey, for why the Red Sox and Rockies 
World Series may or may not occur. <laughs> we, I, I look forward to that prediction uh, coming to pass. And, uh, and I look forward to this hearing. And I thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think this is a very important subject and a fantastic panel, which you have put together here today for us. Uh, because for decades, the United States has promoted democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And this reflects our values and strengthens our security. So today, we take stock of this effort in Asia, the world's most dynamic region. Japan, South Korea, Taiwan demonstrate that democratic values do not thrive only in the West, but wherever societies protect the rights and dignity of all people, East or West, North or South. But while Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan prove that progress is possible, we see a mixed picture elsewhere in the region. Indonesia is both a Muslim-majority country and a democracy that values social tolerance. Yet, work remains before Indonesians move towards a full embrace of diversity and freedom of expression. Myanmar, with strong U.S. support, has made extraordinary progress in overcoming decades of dictatorship. It now faces a turning point. Will reforms continue, or will a failure to address sectarian and ethnic tensions undermine this country's great potential? What will the Filipinos do about a president who tramples all norms of human rights and the rule of law with an ex extrajudicial killing spree masquerading as a counter-drug campaign? And of course, North Korea is a unique case a closed society where horrific violations of human rights occur countless times every single day of the year. Looming over the entire region is China, which questions whether democracy and the rule of law are relevant to economic development. In these circumstances, we must urgently ask, will China's rise undermine democracy, human rights, the rule of law, and regional prosperity? And what can America do to support Asia-Pacific countries seeking progress on these issues. I look forward to exploring these issues with our witnesses today. And once again, Mr. Chairman, I thank you for this great hearing. Thank you, Senator Markey. And I will introduce all three of our witnesses, and then uh, we will begin the, the testimony and the question time. Uh, our first witness is uh, Mr. Murray Hebert, uh, who serves as Senior Advisor and Deputy Director of the Southeast Asia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Prior to joining CSIS, he was Senior Director for Southeast Asia at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and also worked as a journalist in the Wall Street Journal's China Bureau. Thank you very much for being with us today. Our second witness is the Honorable Derek Mitchell, who serves as Senior Advisor to the Asia Program at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Prior to joining the uh, U.S. Institute of Peace, he served as the U.S. Ambassador to Burma from 2012 to 2016 and also served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asian and Pacific Security Affairs from 2009 to 2011. I welcome Ambassador Mitchell. And our final witness today is the Honorable Robert King, who serves as Senior Advisor to the Korea Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Ambassador King previously served as the Special Envoy for North Korean Human Rights Issues at the U.S. State Department from November 2009 to January of 2017, and I encourage everybody to read uh, the report uh, that uh, Ambassador King was uh, author, for, author of. He was the longest-serving U.S. envoy for human rights abuses in North Korea since the creation of the position under the North Korean Human Rights Act of 2004. Uh, welcome, Ambassador King. Thank you very much for being with us today. And uh, Mr. Ebert, if you'd like to join, uh, begin the testimony, please do so. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Chairman Gartner and Ranking Member Markey. 
Congratulations to the committee for holding this hearing on the important issue of promoting democracy, human rights, and rule of law in the Asia-Pacific. Promoting these values sends a clear signal to authoritarian governments that the US, United States is watching how they treat their citizens. The U.S. promotion of human rights and democracy has often made a difference when there's a coordinated government and civil society effort to, to uh, promote increased political space. And uh, Senator Markey already alluded to, the, to what happened in Myanmar, Burma, where, where U.S. policy played a critical role in promoting reforms when the ruling military junta realized that this was the only way to end decades of sanctions and isolation. And the U.S., similarly in Vietnam, it is, which remains an authoritarian government, but the U.S. has played a role in getting political prisoners and imprisoned religious leaders, bloggers, etc., cetera, uh, out uh, as Vietnam has looked to deepen ties with Washington as it faces increasing assertiveness from China. Generally, I would say over the last five or so years, human rights and democratic reform in Southeast Asia appears to have slipped. been several references to the Philippines, where since the election of uh, President Duterte a year ago, police and vigilantes have killed more than 9,000 suspected drug dealers and users, as the government has pursued a policy aimed at er eradicating illegal drug use and sales. Duterte has... Uh, very sharply rejected any criticism of these killings from foreign governments, including the United States. One of the most exciting developments, uh, as also has been alluded to, is what happened in, in uh, Myanmar, the elections in 2015, which were fairly credible, I think, in reflecting the wishes of the people. And yet, despite the improvement of human rights, we fa continue to face some some, a couple of major problems. One is the abuses and restrictions on the, the Rohingya uh, uh, Muslim population of whom about 150,000 or so are still in austere camps and, and, and Rakhine State. And the second issue is human rights problems continue in ethnic minority areas wracked by conflict with the military. Then it, there's Thailand where um, uh, the military government installed after 2014 has sharply limited civil liberties. The government continues to restrict and censor online content, monitors and blocks thousands of websites critical of the monarchy, and dozens of people have been charged and sentenced to long prison terms under Thailand's strict lays majesty laws intended to protect senior members of the royal family. Since uh, the uh, uh, President Trump came into office, he's, uh, he's made a, a, taken a couple of steps which uh, indicate that there's been a slight, at least a slight change in attitudes toward uh, uh, human rights in the region. He, in a phone call to Duterte in late April, he, con he congratulated him for the quote-unquote unbelievable job on the drug problem and invited him to the White House. And another call to uh, Prime Minister Prayut of Thailand the next day, he congratulated him for the, the 2014 coup doing a good job of stabilizing the situation after, after toppling a democratic government. So in both cases, the president uh, appears to have been trying to mend fences with, uh, with uh, countries that have, uh, that have been treaty allies of the United States and had really had a bit of a, a drift apart from the United States and had moved closer to China as a result of tensions with the U.S. And then <clears throat> Secretary Tillerson uh, a couple of months ago also uh, made it clear that when it comes to foreign policy, national interests and economic interests are going to trump human rights. And he added that promoting values are often an obstacle to advancing 
uh, other interests. I'm going to make a few comments on the, about the question of how to, uh, what tools the U.S. has. Uh, it's uh, uh, one of the clearest uh, uh, tools that's been used recently, actually, by my partner here to the right, Ambassador Derek Mitchell, who, as ambassador, did a, a full embassy, full USAID, all parts of the embassy coordinating and playing roles in targeting rule of law, transparency, civil society, the media, etc., in preparation for the elections. Uh, the sad part is that uh, since the new administration took office in January, Myanmar has appears to have, at least in Washington, fallen off the U.S. radar, opening the door to stepped-up Chinese engagement. And then, um, you know, the tensions between human rights and other aspects of foreign policy. Uh, are, one of my colleagues at CSIS, Shannon Green, has recommended that the U.S. government create an interagency decision-making process that helps uh, officials decide between and how to balance uh, tensions that arise between short-term security interests and longer-term human rights interests. Uh, and um, she suggested maybe holding this, uh, housing this agency in the NSC. The other thing that you see making a pretty big difference in Asia is the Leahy Amendment uh, of 1997, which prohibits aid to uh, military forces that violate human rights. Um, this happened in the case of Indonesia after what happened in 1999 in East Timor, the violence. Uh, there, under the Leahy Amendment, the Kopasa Special Forces were sanctioned, and by, um, uh, by the, the, uh, as the government, as the military wanted to get out from under sanctions, they did some reforms in at least some units of Kopasas. And the other thing that's really interesting is that the Philippine military, although President Duterte has suggested several times that they, they ought to get involved in the drug war, they have really stayed out. Officers, when you talk to them, say they recognize they need the United States uh, for us, particularly now in Mindanao, for the fight against Islamic uh, militants. Uh, they need intel sharing and coordination with the U.S. They need U.S. military hardware. The, um, uh, so, so it does have a, has had an indirect effect, at least in the Philippines, the Leahy Amendment. Another tool which is interesting is the trafficking in persons. We saw this in Thailand. Uh, the government, uh, despite all the criticisms of its human rights violation, took particular umbrage at its as tier three status in the, uh, in the trafficking in persons report and made a, a yeoman's effort, I think, at at stepping up investigations, prosecutions, and convictions of traffickers to the point that they were elevated a few months ago to Tier 2. Uh, and then trade agreements, you also recognize that they can play a role. With the Vietnamese negotiating the Trans-Pacific Partnership, they agreed to some pretty sizable uh, labor concessions by agreeing to let uh, freedom of laborers have freedom of association uh, uh, under the to get more access to the United States and uh, U.S. market. And I think that the Vietnam example demonstrates that there can be countries that have human rights problems, but yet they are improving economic and security cooperation with the United States, and therefore it is possible to walk and chew gum, criticize on human rights, and yet improve in other areas. And finally, with the administration sort of uh, slightly missing in action, uh, I think uh, it, on the human rights front, I think it does give Congress a much bigger role, and, and we look to all of you to uh, help help carry the flame for democracy and human rights uh, overseas in the next few years. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Ebert. Uh, Ambassador Mitchell. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Markey. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me to, to speak um, at this hearing, and I'm very honored to be joined by my good friends, Murray Hebert and Bob King, to my left and right. 
As a citizen, let me also extend my gratitude for the series of hearings the subcommittee has organized in recent months to examine U.S. interests in East Asia, beginning with examinations of security, economic affairs, and now human rights, governance, and rule of law. Too often, these interests are looked at independently, as distinct from one another when they are, in fact, closely linked. It has been my observation and experience that commitment to values of human rights and democracy is not merely an idealistic goal or an ideology, but quite proven in practice. When countries promote individual human dignity and protect civil liberties, they tend to be more highly functioning and stable societies. They create conditions for peaceful interaction within and among states. They provide platforms for individual achievement. They also become more appealing destinations for business investment and are able to prevent their territory from being a source of international instability or transnational challenge like those that Murray just listed. The perception persists nonetheless that somehow promoting human rights and democratic governance is at best a luxury and at worst an obstruction to protecting U.S. economic and national security interests around the world. Asian and some non-Asian commentators over the years have advanced the theory of Asian exceptionalism that, quote, Western values of democracy and human rights are somehow alien to Asian culture, lack foundation in Asian history, and thus are unnatural to Asian society. But over the past 30 years, the region has enjoyed a rush of democratic change and advancement of human rights, accompanied by relative stability and dynamic economic growth. When presented the opportunity, the people of East Asia, like others around the world, have demanded that their voices be heard and respected and that they have the right to hold their governments accountable. And the United States has benefited materially as a result in economic, political, and national security terms. Progress has been hardly linear, without setbacks, or shared among all nations in the region. But those who claim Asia as a whole is uniquely immune to the yearning for individual rights, personal freedoms, and accountable governance have had to reassess. I saw that personally in Burma. I witnessed firsthand the deep respect that Burmese people had for the United States due to our strong and sustained commitment to stand with them instead of exploiting the country for economic or geopolitical gain. I should note that that commitment was bipartisan, reflected in congressional legislation and the policies of successive presidential administrations. U.S. policies then and since then were geared to supporting Burma's success, with promotion of human rights and democratic processes a central and fully integrated component. We understood without that component, peace, stability, security, and overall development in Burma could not be achieved to the detriment of our interests. Of course, the transition in Burma is not complete, as you say. Enormous challenges remain in northern Rakhine State, Kachin, northern Shan State, and all around the country. Future success is not certain. But even as we must recognize the most important factor in Burma's success, no doubt will come from within. Burma's people told me often that principled support of external partners, most importantly the United States, would remain essential for their morale and continued progress. In terms of recommendations for U.S. policy, the first must critically be, as Murray suggested, for the current U.S. administration to recognize the importance of human rights and democracy promotion to U.S. interests and return it to U.S. foreign policy. The U.S. Congress should do what's necessary to reassert its traditional prerogative as conscience of the country in this regard. Secondly, from my experience, uh, an effective values-based policy requires thoughtful implementation by U.S. missions overseas. U.S. embassies should tightly knit all their components, State Department, USAID, DOD, etc., into a coherent strategic whole to ensure consistency. 
That's the cliche known as the one mission approach. Third, given that human rights and democratic gains take hold gradually and that political transitions transcend single moments in time such as elections, the US government, including Congress, must remain patient, manage expectations, and provide resources on a consistent basis to support the institutions and processes that promote human rights, democracy, and rule of law around the world. Such support should not wane due to premature assumptions of success, disappointing setbacks, or periodic shifts in political winds in the United States. To be specific and blunt, Congress should fully fund both the State Department and USAID and leading institutions that conduct re related work in Asia, such as the National Endowment for Democracy and its sister organizations, NDI and IRI, Radio Free Asia, Voice of America, Peace Corps, the Asia Foundation, the East-West Center, and the U.S. Institute of Peace. Let me just say in conclusion that human rights, democracy, and rule of law are fundamental components of who we are as a nation, essential to America's founding idea and meaning as a country. The United States may not always be perfectly consistent in application. All foreign policy, after all, is a matter of balancing competing priorities and making choices based on context. But without a principled element to our foreign policy, we unilaterally throw away our unique advantage among peoples of the world as a generous and attractive great power, one that is committed to the overall well-being of others as equally worthy to the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. More fundamentally, the defining challenge of the 21st century will be preserving and adapting as needed the norms, rules, and values of the post-World War II international system in the face of rising powers who may be uncomfortable with that status quo. If the United States does not lead in shaping those norms, rules, and values, including on human rights, democracy, and rule of law, no one else can or will quite take our place. And others will just as surely fill that void with their own version of values promotion to our lasting detriment. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Ambassador Mitchell. Ambassador King, I gave you credit for Judge Kirby's report. You were special envoy. I still want people to read that report while you were special envoy. So thank you, Ambassador King. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Markey, thank you for the invitation to appear before the subcommittee today, but thank you also for holding this hearing. Uh, as you know, my special interest and focus for the last seven years has been promoting human rights, rule of law, and democracy in North Korea. And my comments today are going to focus primarily on North Korea. Uh, today's hearing is particularly appropriate and timely. The last few months, the United States has given particular attention to security issues involving the North. This attention is fully warranted. I am concerned, however, that in giving proper attention to security issues, we not lose sight of the critical importance of human rights in our policy towards North Korea. It's important to keep in mind that a country which brazenly and openly violates the human rights of its own citizens is a country that will not hesitate to use weapons of mass destruction against neighboring countries. A country that sends agents to murder the half-brother of its leader will have no reluctance to use similar tactics against the citizens of countries it fears. Mr. Chairman, I want to mention in particular the critical role that Congress has played in pressing administrations, both Republican and Democratic, to give attention to human rights in our policy towards North Korea. The overwhelming support for adoption and reauthorization of the North Korea Human Rights Act of 2004 reflects the bipartisan consensus and the importance of this issue. 
Congressional interest in North Korean human rights is the principal reason that progress has been made over the last decade in pressing North Korea on its abysmal human rights record. And I'm delighted to see that this committee is continuing that role. One of the most important recent steps was the creation of the UN Commission of Inquiry on DPRK human rights, which you mentioned. That groundbreaking report was indeed a major step forward. The Commission of Inquiry concluded that the North's human rights crimes involve extermination, murder, enslavement, torture, imprisonment, rape, forced abortions and other sexual violence, persecution on political, religious, racial and gender grounds, the forcible transfer of populations, enforced disappearance of persons, the inhumane act of knowingly causing prolonged starvation. Mr. Chairman, it is important that we continue to press the North on these human rights violations. And there are several steps that I would urge the administration and the Congress to pursue with regard to North Korea. First, we need to continue our active leadership efforts at the United Nations. The Human Rights Council in Geneva has played a critical role on human rights, creating the commission that we've talked about. We need to continue our active leadership and participation in that forum. We found broad support of the UN General Assembly in New York. By substantial majorities, the General Assembly has approved resolution, resolutions critical of the violations of human rights by the North. We need to continue our efforts there as well. The UN Security Council has discussed the North Korea's uh, human rights abuses for the last three years. That would not have happened if it hadn't been for the United States playing an active leadership role. It's important that we continue our engagement and involvement with the UN. Second, we need to continue to encourage the free flow of information into North Korea. The availability of accurate information about events beyond the borders of the North limits the ability of the dictatorship to manipulate its own people. We need to continue robust American support for The Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, and other programs to increase access to digital information, including increased appropriations to support these programs. The impact is long-term, but it's vital to the press the North Koreans in directions that are positive. Third, we need to continue to support refugees who flee North Korea at great personal risk to their own and their families' lives. Only a few of these refugees have chosen to come to the United States, but we should aid those who've chosen to settle here. We must also support the South Korean government in its humane and generous refugee program for those from the North. And we need to continue to press China to permit refugees from the North who seek to escape through their country to move on. Refugees repatriated by China are among the most vulnerable to imprisonment, torture, and execution by the North Korean regime. Fourth, we must not ignore the humanitarian needs of the North Korean people. Admittedly, the brutal conditions in the North are the result of government policy that places the needs of the bulk of the people well below priorities for the luxuries of the leadership and the development of nuclear weapons and missiles. If we can determine the legitimate humanitarian needs of the people, we should assist in providing aid if we can assure that it goes to those most in need. We should also assist private American humanitarian organizations that provide such aid. Finally, Mr. Chairman, we need to think carefully about travel by American citizens to North Korea. Over the past decade, more than a score of American citizens have been detained 
They've been held in isolation and suffered from their imprisonment. The most tragic and heartrending case was the American student who died recently, shortly after his return to the United States. Many hundreds of Americans visit North Korea each year. Most return without a problem. Some of these are engaged in important medical and other humanitarian efforts, but many go to get bragging rights for participating in the Pyongyang Marathon or for other adventures. If the Congress or the administration should consider a ban on U.S. citizen travel to the North, an exception should be permitted for travel by Americans involved in humanitarian and other worthy efforts in North Korea. Thank you very much for this hearing, and thank you for the opportunity to participate. Thank you, Ambassador. Again, thank, thank all of you. We'll begin with the questions. And just to, to start a question following up on what you just said, uh, you would support a travel ban with the exemption that you talked about. Is that correct? As long as there's an opportunity to provide a license or permission for people who meet certain criteria, doing humanitarian and other kinds of work, yes. Thanks, Ambassador. Ambassador Mitchell or, or Mr. Eber, would you like to comment on that travel ban, a North Korea travel ban at all? No, thank you. Um, Mr. Eber, one of the topics you brought up in your opening statement was a interagency, I think Shannon Green you mentioned, was uh, uh, behind an idea that would develop an interagency decision-making body to help resolve the tension, I think is the word you used, between a security decision and a human rights decision. Uh, you know, earlier this year, Secretary Tillerson said, and I quote, in some circumstances, if you condition our national security efforts on someone adopting our values, we probably can't achieve our national security goals or our national security interests. I think it's very clear on the panel that national security interests, human rights, uh, they do go hand in hand in economic development interests. Those nations who are spurring economic growth respect uh, human rights. W would such a panel, could you describe maybe a little bit more detail such a panel? Would it be something that could actually help us resolve that tension or would it, would it result in perhaps over-reliance on uh, a panel that could lead more favorably on security concerns and neglecting uh, human rights concerns? That's always the problem, right? But it would need uh, somebody, a good, good moderator, to, I think, uh, referee between the different uh, priorities of the, of the Pentagon, of the State Department, of the economic agencies, um, and of, of the uh, human rights, uh, you know, the DLR in the, um, uh, in the State Department. Uh, and, and it's... You know, the, the idea is not necessarily to, to override uh, security concerns, but uh, especially, you know, for example, now in the Philippines where you have the, have the militant uh, Maori group uh, operating and occupying a city for almost two months. Uh, obviously, t there are times when security has to test to take, to take uh, top position. But it's, it's really just to keep that the, the importance of human rights uh, concerns within that debate alive rather than just being totally missing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. One of the, the comments made during the testimony was a concern that Burma may have fallen off the radar uh, in terms of uh, the, the attention it's receiving from the administration in Washington right now. One of the elements of the bill that we are developing in the ARIA legislation, one of the components of that bill, addresses Burma by learning from what we did in Africa uh, with the Electrify Africa Act, the Power Africa Act, the administration, last administration successfully pursued um, and would sort of take that idea of a uh, Power Africa and put it into Burma where we have like a Power Burma initiative where the U.S. private sector um, and, and government can work together to try to develop a more stable uh, energy supply in Burma. 
The reason that idea came forward is because a conversation with one of the closest advisors to Aung San Suu Kyi was uh, a concern that three things needed to be accomplished during the new government. Uh, that was progress made on the strife, uh, civil war, uh, and progress made on electricity. And so if we can take that kind of uh, policy initiative and put it in place in Burma, Ambassador Mitchell, I'd like your opinion on whether something like that could work and help achieve the goals that they need to to help make this new civilian government more successful. There is no doubt that um, they need to demonstrate that democracy delivers and electricity generation uh, powers everything. I mean, it, it affects education, it affects agriculture, it affects all the development they would look for in that country. Um, I don't know specifically what was done in Africa to know how you can transfer that context to a, a Burmese context. Um, it is uh, the problem with Burma is that it is a, they have a problem of peace. They are it is fractured. Uh, it is very difficult to get access to lots of locations. You can go and get access to the center, but getting access to some of the periphery is more difficult. They have um, their their systems and their um, uh, their power generation is 30, 40 years old. So the whole infrastructure needs to be regenerated. The World Bank's working this. They also need a plan, first of all, of how they want to do this. So do you work at a national level? Or do you do it local, locally and then build a network among these localized initiatives? They, if we can put extra funds and extra thinking to assist them with this, then absolutely. It is the long pole in the tent for Burmese development. But we have to be very careful to, to act according to their context and not try to transfer entirely you know, what, what worked one place yeah. and assume it will work in Burma. And, of course, this is a, a human rights-focused hearing. That's an economic focus. But, but tell me, explain to me the connection between that again. I think it's important to note. Well, I mean, one thing, democracy, I, I, you know, we used to have a list of the things that we were seeking to achieve in Burma. We put them on the wall in the embassy. You know, it was peace and then human rights and democracy because you can't have peace without human rights and democracy. And frankly, you can't have human rights and democracy without peace. But then democracy needs to deliver. I mean, she has been voted. I mean, what people have been seeking was a, a credible election. There was a credible election in which Aung San Suu Kyi has now gained most of the power, not all of the power in the country. The military still has control of some pretty important uh, levers. But uh, she needs to deliver. And electricity is one of those things that's very tangible to people in that country that they're looking for. It's not going to happen nationally immediately, but as long as there continue to be brownouts and blackouts, then people will say, democracy, why is this different or any better than what we had before? And we've seen that movie before in Eastern Europe. The expectations are very high. So in terms of democracy, it's very, very important. In terms of human rights, in terms of equitable development, enabling people all over you know, uh, the country to have access to education, information, is very important. Um, so in a number of ways, you can make the connection there between uh, seeing the development occur under this new system and seeing this new system, frankly, um, succeed and persist in a very, very difficult environment. Ambassador King, uh, President Moon has, and some various members of the administration have made comments in recent weeks uh, uh, inviting or appearing to invite uh, the North Korean to co-host, North Korea to co-host the Olympics, uh, other statements. Could you talk a little bit about perhaps what you see and hear out of South Korea and whether or not that is helpful in terms of holding North Korea accountable for human rights? Uh, the expectation was there might be problems with South Korea with the election. My sense is the president, President uh, Moon Jae-in, 
has been very careful in terms of what he said about human rights. He's a human rights lawyer. Uh, his uh, foreign affairs minister is the former deputy uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights. Uh, they both made statements expressing concern and support for human rights. So I think there is a commitment in South Korea to human rights, rule of law, democracy. And while there is a desire at the same time to move towards reconciliation with the North, I don't think that it's going to be at the cost of uh, pressing on, on human rights. Thank you, Mr. King. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, Mr. King, when... Uh, when uh, there's a criticism of human rights policy in North Korea, they consider it an attempt externally to uh, begin a process of regime change. They get rid of this whole Kim dynasty and start all over again. So, <clears throat> so we kind of get into a, a situation where you have to try to find a pathway forward. So I am of the opinion that we have to begin a process of, di of direct negotiations with the North Koreans around their nuclear program. But as part of that discussion, uh, of course, human rights uh, would ultimately be implicated. Can you talk about this rise in the threat of uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile with a nuclear warhead on top of it? And... Uh, and how we deal with that issue and how we deal with it in the context of uh, human rights. We had to basically deal with that same squared circle back in the 1980s where there was an out-of-control nuclear arms race going on with the Soviet Union, and simultaneously um, there was a Jewish population inside of <laughs> Russia that was being oppressed. Uh, and ultimately... It turns out that the arms negotiation is what led to the total freedom that was then created. So how do you view it, given your you know, long experience in this area? Russia was a lot easier than North Korea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but not viewed that way at the time. No, certainly not. Um, the first thing that I think we need to emphasize is that a policy of encouraging respect for human rights is not a policy that's aimed at regime change. I think what I would say is that what we want to do is to encourage countries to be responsive to their own people. And by increasing information in North Korea about what's going on elsewhere, it will put pressure on the regime to take into account what its people are concerned about. And so I think we need to continue to press on human rights. We need to continue to press the North Koreans in the United Nations, which, uh, because this raises questions about the legitimacy of the regime, uh, which, will, uh, which has had some effect in terms of changes, mostly around the edge rather than fundamental changes, but we need to continue to press them. Uh, I think uh, when we're dealing with the question of human rights and security, uh, this is not a, a, an either-or. I think both are related. And in the case of the Soviet Union, I think our uh, nuclear policy and our human rights policy work together in a positive direction. Uh, I don't think that... Uh, I, I think the Russians were far... The Soviets were far more willing to discuss 
the question of nuclear weapons with us than the North Koreans have been. And the difficulty we face is a reluctance at this point on the part of the North Koreans to talk at all. But if you remember back then, though, that Reagan was not willing to sit down with the Soviets. He pulled out of all talks. And so it was just the opposite. We had walked away from all talks, yeah. having been at the table since the Eisenhower administration. So, <clears throat> so then ultimately, you know, it was the United States engaging with Gorbachev that began the discussion of reaching an agreement, which then created an atmosphere where human rights could be more respected. But before that, not so. So how do we... How do we deal with the, this issue of managing expectations about human rights in North Korea with the mm -hmm. world community uh, in a context of trying to engage in direct negotiations with the North Koreans with regard to their nuclear program, which to a certain extent, it seems to me, is a sine qua non with regard to ultimately being able to affect human rights? Yeah. Uh, it's not an easy one. Uh, on the one hand, I think we need to continue to press on human rights. We should not back off on, on pressing them on that. Uh, on the other hand, I think we need to continue to make the cost of acquiring nuclear weapons and improving those nuclear weapons uh, greater by the sanctions we impose, by working with other countries. The one thing that I think is critical in this whole process is that this is not something the United States can do by itself. This is something that requires us to be involved and engaged with other countries. We need to work through the United Nations, both on security and human rights issues. We need to work with other countries in terms of the sanctions that are imposed. U.S. sanctions against North Korea are very limited. Sanctions that are imposed by the United Nations in cooperation with the Chinese can and do make a difference, and we need to continue to press the Chinese in terms of that effort. It's not an easy way to go forward, and there's no silver bullet that's going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. you know, the problem as it exists is that from the first quarter of 2016 to the first quarter of 2017, there was a 37% increase in trade between China and North Korea, and simultaneously there was a $10 billion hit on the South Korean economy as the Chinese impose tougher, you know, controls on tourism going to South Korea. So that's the law of unintended consequences where the country we're trying to help gets a $10 billion hit on their economy <clears throat> and there's an increase in trade in North Korea and all as a result of U.S. policy on THAAD and other areas. So that's, to me, just something that we have to re-examine uh, so that you don't engage in a repetition syndrome uh, trying yeah. to get as a different result from a policy that ultimately has, has to require the Chinese to be participating, but under the existing circumstances, it's highly unlikely that that will be the case no matter what we do. It's a mixed picture because recently the price of rice in North Korea has gone up significantly. There are indications that there may have been some uh, cutoff of, of some petroleum products. Uh, we don't have perfect information about North Korea, but the information we have suggests it's a mixed picture. And I think part of what we have to do is continue the effort of working with others to try to move this forward. No, I agree with you. It may be a mixed picture, but if that number is accurate, the 37% increase in trade, that's the overarching larger environment within which North Korea is now existing, and there may be some sub-stories within that that may be harmful in rice or yes. other areas, but 
the totality of it is just something that doesn't appear to be a stranglehold at all or heading in yeah. the direction of the North Korean economy. So that's, to me, it just, it, it raises difficult questions in terms of how we progress <clears throat> from here uh, to get the result we want, which is a denuclearized North Korea and an increase in human rights in that country. And I Like I said, Soviet Union was easy by comparison. No, I appreciate that, but that was, at that point, we were, <clears throat> we were uh, 40 years into that and, yeah. uh, and had not been able to square that circle. So it only began, really, when we had the direct negotiations, only when they began to sit down and rake it. But it also began because there were changes taking place in the Soviet Union. It was the advent of Gorbachev and the, the changes that he made in terms of moving the economy towards a market economy, uh, allowing greater freedom uh, in terms of innovation. And I agree with that 100%, things. but that was, that was the actuarial table at work. That was Gorbachev dying, then Chenenkov, another septuagenarian, getting named and him dying, and then Andropov being named and him being a septuagenarian, him dying. So... The actuarial table did work in our favor in 83 and 84, so in 85, <laughs> Gorbachev got the job. But the Kim dynasty, <laughs> given the actuarial table as it affects him, is unlikely uh, to result in this opportunity, which Reagan ultimately got. But it wasn't through a plan. It was through something that happened internally in their country. So we need he wasn't going to change unless that happened. And uh, I just think relying upon that to happen inside of North Korea is... It's exceedingly optimistic. I just think that we have to yeah. have an external strategy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, and uh, we'll just continue back and forth if you don't mind. Uh, one of the, the the focus of the bill, of course, the human rights, uh, rule of law, uh, and uh, we see in North Korea continued violation by uh, many nations accepting labor out of North Korea, uh, both a rule of law challenge uh, to both nations involved as well as a democracy challenge, uh, excuse me, human rights uh, concern. Uh, so, uh, how, how could you, how would you address in legislation uh, the labor uh, abuses taking place in China of North Korean workers, the continued acceptance of uh, labor from North Korea around the globe? Uh, there's been some success in dealing with uh, North Korean workers working abroad. Diplomatically, we have pressed countries in Europe, in the Middle East, and elsewhere, and urged them to. Uh, Move beyond, uh, move beyond using North Korean workers. And we've had some progress in, in so, several areas. Uh, the problem is the largest number of workers are in China and in, the Soviet, in, in Russia. And this is the most difficult of, of areas to deal with. And we need to continue to press. We need to continue to work on it. But there's not, uh, not an easy solution. Is, is there a... Could you apply something like the Global Magnitsky Human Rights uh, Act to... Uh, a Chinese official if you knew that they were a part of allowing labor uh, into China? Is there a path there that you could use? Uh, it might be something that could be done. Uh, identifying individuals and applying sanctions to individuals in cases like this could be helpful. It's difficult to get information, particularly at the levels where these decisions are being made on workers. Uh, it, it might be worth looking at, but I don't see it as the the silver bullet. When we see news reports about something like soccer stadiums being built with North Korean labor, how should we uh, address that? The way we have. We've raised it with uh, the Middle East country involved. We've uh, 
raised our concerns with them. They understand those concerns, and they've moved in different directions. Thank you. Uh, Ambassador Mitchell, you mentioned in your statement uh, that changes in human rights uh, gradually take place, that the U.S. has to be patient, uh, and that we need to support programs that would support that nation, but also, I think, made it clear, patience. Could you talk about your experience in Burma? And uh, I know there were some sanctions that were lifted in Burma, uh, and as a result of those sanctions, I think there was an anticipation there might be greater changes. There was anticipation under the new government that we might see greater progress on the Rohingya. Uh, and uh, talk a little bit about that experience and whether or not we have been too patient, whether we should have more patience, and how to balance that patience with additional actions to try to have better results. Are you referring specifically to the Rohingya or just generally? Generally speaking. General. Well, in general, I mean, the one thing, as I mentioned there as well, that democracy doesn't start and end um, with elections, really end with elections, um, that it's a process. And we knew, I knew, that even though we had this remarkable moment in 2015 where Aung San Suu Kyi's party wins, she becomes effectively the leader, that she just inherited the same structural problems of this country that existed before the election. 50 years of systematic degradation of every institution of this country, except for one, except for the military. I mean, civil society had worked underground. People with the best and the brightest either left or were killed or in prison. So capa human capacity, uh, the legal infrastructure, the physical infrastructure, all needs to be built. And trust needs to be uh, constructed as well among this remarkably diverse population that's the longest-running civil war in the world. Seventy years since independence, they've been fighting themselves. So we always had to have very managed expectations of how quickly things would move on the ground and how we would see progress proceed. Having said that, um, yes, of course we should expect things to go, you know, see progress, see more measurable progress, uh, including things like electricity, as you mentioned. Uh, it's probably gone slower um, than we would have expected. It should, they should uh, have moved. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi, I think many people when I was there just a few months ago were criticizing her for not paying enough attention to the economy. Um, and, you know, I, I think people have tried to suggest to her, you do need to deliver on these things for people so they feel that there's a result from democracy. Um, so we do have to be patient. Uh, on things like in human rights, just the human rights side of things, there are legacy laws. There are laws that are in place from the British colonial days that deal with unlawful associations, people getting together unlawfully, uh, which are just 100 years old, more than 100 years old and need to be gotten rid of, brought up to date. There are new laws in telecommunications that, um, that regard people who criticize the military or even Aung San Suu Kyi on Facebook as a criminal. So you're having new political prisoners or new people brought up on charges for free speech. This shouldn't be happening. Again, it's a legacy of old mindsets, a legacy of the past, legacy of lack of capacity. That needs to be done quicker, and I think we should be holding them to account for those things. And finally, what I'll say is on the Rohingya, which I can, we can talk extensively about, um, you know, that it is, it was, I always say it was sort of a black spot of my time there. As you said, it was a remarkable, extraordinary period. I was fortunate to be there and present and part of that, the change, but that situation only got worse when I was there. These people are kept in pens, and their humanity and dignity are taken away from them. And I think what I try to suggest to uh, everyone there is that it is not working for the country. The status quo and sustaining that situation is not only terrible for the Rohingya and affecting their reputation writ large in the international community, but more importantly, frankly, for them, is that it is not 
helping them. It is setting the Rakhine people back, Rakhine state back, where this is happening, and the whole country is attracting the attention of the worst actors in the world, and now there's a concern about a, an extremist group that may be acting there. So even in their own interest, they need to be thinking differently and acting differently to give these people a certain degree of justice, due process, um, their humanity and dignity, um, so that they can stabilize the situation and then move forward um, as a country. Mr. Schubert, if you wanted to talk about Burma, please uh, feel free to. But a question to you about Thailand and uh, the U.S. Do we have an opportunity to persuade the military there to lessen the uh, restrictions that's placed on freedom of expression in Thailand? And what leverage do we have in terms of uh, rights in Thailand? Boy, it, it, uh, they, they haven't uh, accepted criticism very well. Uh, we've seen various people in the previous administration try to go and talk a little bit about that. It was hoped that the, uh, the prime minister may be coming here in mid-July. That had been planned. However, the Thais have now asked for that trip to be delayed. They think they couldn't get ready for the whole, the whole all the stuff that you got to do for having a head of state visit here. Uh, the, there's also a lot of sensitivity as we're in this uh, uh, change in the monarchy. The former king will be cremated in, the, uh, in October, and then the new king will be coronated in, probably in December. Uh, and in this transition, everybody is being very cautious and don't want to change the status quo. And so they've been really hard on, uh, Derek was talking about some of the legacy laws in Myanmar. Well, they, they've really been pretty tough on stuff happening on Facebook and social media generally. Very critical of anybody um, po posting stuff uh, that's even hinting at some making fun of or, or the, the monarchy. It's, so it's in a very sensitive period, but it had, you know, we're, we're hoping, that, I guess the hope was that if we could get them, get the prime minister here, uh, that gradually relations at, at all kinds of levels, we could have some trade deals start happening, we could have some mill-to-mill -mill cooperation resume at a higher level, that you would eventually get, and then that they would move toward elections. And I, I guess in some ways I wish when, when the president had called him, that he, he could have said, you know, it's great that the country is more stable, but he, without offending him in the least, could have said, but we could also start, you know, it would be really nice if you would start moving toward elections, which you have said you want to hold next year, we're watching, I hope you can do it, kind of thing, which wouldn't, would have been, been fine. Um, but at, uh, it just generally, the, the country is a little stuck at, at this current place, and it needs, it needs some way to break the logjam, and that's why I guess many of us are hoping the trip would happen here. And the outlook for the elections? Oh, gosh. We've had them a few times on the, doc, you know, uh, in, uh, on the horizon. Um, I guess, I don't know. You know, it's funny when you talk to Thais, some will tell you, yeah, it might happen this time. Others say, well, they postponed it three or four times already. They may do it again. That would be another advantage to having him come here. The pr Prime Minister, uh, I think it would be a way to start talking about some of these things and, and nudge them a little bit that this matters. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, very much. Mr. Hebert, what is your uh, assessment of the threats to Indonesia's democracy coming from the rising religious and ethnic intolerance inside of that country? Uh, is this something that is becoming more serious as a concern that we should have in our country? Well, you, you, uh, you will have seen uh, what happened with, uh, 
with the treatment of the uh, governor, a mayor, uh, Ahok of, of uh, Jakarta, where you, uh, ahead of the elections, he, uh, during the campaigning, he made a, a offhanded uh, sort of uh, joke, a slight joke about about whether whether Muslims could live under non non Muslims, and, and, and that in and, and he was an ethnic. He's Chinese ethnic Chinese Christian. Christian, yes. So an ethnic uh, Chinese Christian is making this joke. Yes. Right. So it was not received very well. And he, it, it might have been, except that the, the, this was recorded and, and then the conservative uh, Muslims really played this up. And they had two giant protests late last year uh, that uh, really highlighted that they were, you know, on the ascendancy and would would play some role. And I think uh, in, the, in the process, uh, the election process, and in the end we saw Ahok uh, not uh, only lose the election, he, was in charge of, he had been charged with blasphemy, and when the prosecutors urged that the courts uh, uh, only, uh, sentence him only to probation and not going to jail, the, the, the judges, uh, the panel of judges actually uh, uh, called for him to be put in jail, and he's now serving a two-year sentence in prison. Um, so, again, the crime that he committed as an ethnic Chinese Christian, again, was? Blasphemy. And the blasphemy was? That he raised questions in a joking way about whether a Muslim could live under a non-Muslim, could be ruled by a non-Muslim. So he's two years in prison right now yeah. for saying that. Yeah. So they, Today, what, something, I was just going to add, just today, uh, the, the president, uh, Jokowi, initiated some legal proceedings which will allow them to be able to ban certain uh, very radical uh, Muslim groups. And we could see that, uh, but, but during the campaign of, uh, for Ahok, uh, the, the governor, there was the, the, a lot of the, his opponents were using these very conservative religious groups, even though they weren't part of them. They used those <clears throat> protests actually well, it, to discredit so, Ahok. So you're saying after the fact, after the election, after the conviction, now the president of the country is getting concerned about the rise? He's getting of- concerned because he has his own elections in 2019, right? Uh, and he wants to make sure that these guys are somewhat reined in. And uh, some of the more moderate Muslim groups have have endorsed that this is probably a good idea. This okay, so what, what could the United States do? What could the subcommittee do uh, in order to send a message that that kind of uh, behavior is unacceptable? What yeah, would you recommend? That's, that's, a, that's a tough one. Um, uh, Obviously, you can keep talking about the concerns. I think people uh, like uh, the members of Congress can visit and raise concerns about this. Uh, it's, it's really tough in a country that is running a fairly good democracy to, to know how you, you can't really sanction them. Uh, you, you want to do it, I think, through, and, and President Obama did a very good job of this as somebody that's lived in, in Indonesia talking about diversity and how you live with people with different opinions. Uh, I think, uh, but I, th- I think that could be continued now, and I think members of Congress and the administration need to find ways to just keep talking to President Jokowi and, uh, and his cabinet about why, why some of the things that are happening now are dangerous. Yeah, he was a Christian going to a Catholic school in a Muslim nation. President Obama. <laughs> so uh, that that is something that 
<clears throat> you know, is I think lost on people. But um, uh, let, let me move on. But I do. I think I would like to. We would like to pursue with you this issue because I, I think it is something that it's important for the United States to have a view on this. We can think about it some more and come okay, up with yeah, some that, ideas I for you. I think it would be helpful to us okay. if you could have a recommendation for us. Um, uh, the the, uh, the question of internet freedom, I'll just give you the grades here. Um, in 2016, Freedom of the Net survey, Freedom House ranked China, Vietnam, Myanmar, and Thailand as not free, Cambodia, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore and South Korea come out as partly free. Um, and our challenge promoting free expression uh, of the internet in Asia is complicated by the fact that China vigorously promotes strict state control of cyberspace across the region. Um, what are your perspectives on how any of you, how the United States can meet this challenge to be driving the internet in terms of a more open model rather than what is increasingly happening in country after country? Well, I think you, you have to make the case as we do um, everywhere that what we're trying to achieve, and it goes to what you were discussing with, with Murray, is taking a positive, I think, attack on this, that, that we are seeking your success. And from our experience, here are the lessons that we've learned on this in a diverse place like Indonesia, a diverse place like Myanmar, you are going down a very, very risky path of division that ends badly, uh, and why we believe this. And I think it's the first level of discussion. On the Internet, um, you have different levels of control of the Internet or access to the Internet. Um, Vietnam, they're going after bloggers, but there's actually pretty good access to the information otherwise, and people are free to speak on Facebook. Uh, Myanmar, I think, similarly, that people are, have access to... I mean, face, it's a Facebook country. Um, my embassy had over a million followers, you know, so whatever we put up there, we got a million people reading it. Um, but if you say the wrong thing, if you criticize somebody the wrong way, then you get thrown in prison because you have, you know, denigrated somebody. Um, so no libel laws and that kind of thing. So there, are, um, I think we have to, first off, I mean, convey... Uh, the, the positives of free information, that the, the absence of this will create more instability, more problem for your democracy, more uh, division in your society, more problems for you, and certainly condemnation, bad uh, um, reputation in the U.S. Congress and those who really want to work in partnership, and that it will have an effect on the partnership we want to have with these countries. Yeah. Uh, in the uh, early hearings which the chairman had, the witnesses all agreed that a continued American engagement is absolutely essential economically, diplomatically, militarily in this uh, region. Uh, but we have this China model, which is also uh, competing with us now. And so I'd like, if I could, if you don't mind, Mr. Chairman, just your views on this dynamic tension and very aggressive strategy which the Chinese have put together, which ultimately helps to create a different ideation uh, with regard to what a successful governance model could look like uh, in countries in Asia. So could you talk about that and what you believe the United States has to do if we're going to be effective in countering that message? I mean, if I can say, I, 
Look, if you're an autocratic government or a single-party government, you're going to favor doing this. I mean, you want to control information. That's your idea of what security or stability looks like. Um, and what we need to do is support those actors who, you know, to open up the country and allow more voices through civil society, through free media, through our engagement, um, through NGOs and our own work, um, Radio Free Asia, Voice of America, et cetera, to try to uh, demonstrate that uh, open flow of information is what a free society looks like and that free societies succeed. Uh, China has enormous challenges internally. And when um, I talk to people in Burma about the China model, they say, we don't want to be like China, <laughs> which is you know, good that they don't want to be that model uh, of, of governance. They want to be their own model of governance, and they talk about democracy, and they're willing to, to try this. Now, Vietnam, you hear that over time we want to open up gradually, uh, and I think we make it clear to them this matters to us and that we will hold them to account uh, whether this continues on a, in a gradually progressive way or not. The challenge I always found in Burma was uh, trying to measure what progress looked like. How do we know if we're still on track but going slower or slowly or if things have gotten off track? Uh, and that's something that it's, it's an art, not a science. Uh, there's no easy way, and the people of the country will make their own judgments according to their own interests. But I think what we should do as much as possible is to empower the people of the country, empower a diverse array of voices in the country, get information in. They will make their own decisions, um, but that will be the best way to empower those that, that we think will help. Thank you. Uh, Mr. King, uh, uh, Mr. Yeah, if, if the United States retreats, which the budget proposals, at least, of this administration would indicate that is one alternative path that we could go down. If we do retreat, what, what does that mean in terms of the Chinese ability to propound an alternative authoritarian model, uh, which could also be successful because of the additional benefits that would flow to those countries that would embrace it? Well, the, the, certainly uh, you do... Uh, if the U.S. is missing, then in Southeast Asia, it's pretty obvious there's right now, uh, as the U.S. sort of seems to be withdrawing, and China has been putting a lot of pressure on the neighbors uh, to, to sort of drift back toward, toward China, you, you do have the situation where their model in many cases is, is now, uh, now being looked at. Uh, but I was going to also make the point uh, economically in with Vietnam, which has got Intel in there, uh, it's got Samsung as their by far biggest exporter, uh, that Vietnam realizes they need to keep the Internet open uh, to, for economic development. And so therefore, it's not State Department human rights guys that come and thump on the table. It's USTR people doing a, a trade and investment framework agreement talk. And that starts changing the dynamic. And so countries like, like Vietnam, which I would not put in the category of China, they can't. I go to China. I can't access New York Times or Wall Street mm -hmm. Journal. I can't access my Gmail mm -hmm. account. In Vietnam, I can access everything. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the, uh, the, in Thailand, we saw the recent case where they were going to, they were pressing the, uh, uh, the Facebook and other social media companies to actually monitor what was on, uh, was what they were putting up, what, what people were putting up on these, these platforms. And, uh, uh, you know, by talking economically ahead of the, the prime minister's 
thought of visit that was supposed to happen next week and now is not going to, but the ties postponed some of the decisions about how to implement these, some of these regulations. So economically, we do have some leverage at times also in countries that want to be part of the, um, the global supply chain. Yeah, just before, Mr. Kim, before I go to you, Mr. Kim, I just want to say that Vietnam has just announced a $1 billion deal with a company in Massachusetts, in Billerica, Massachusetts, to purchase uh, uh, scanning equipment, detection equipment that can detect uh, nuclear uh, contraband coming into their country or uh, fentanyl or drugs uh, coming into their country. Uh, and so that is a pure capitalist deal. <clears throat> that uh, advantages uh, that company and uh, also reflects kind of openings that uh, it could be a precedent for other United States uh, cooperation with that country. Mr. King. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that uh, Chinese information is not permitted in North Korea because it's uh, far too open for what the so North say that Koreans again. are used to. <laughs> say that again. Uh, it is illegal to listen to Chinese radio in North Korea. Uh, and compared to what you get in North Korea, Chinese radio is far more open uh, than what they're getting domestically. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that sources of external information include listening to Chinese radio as well as South Korean and American-funded broadcasts. Uh, one of the things that I think we need to do and where we can make a difference, particularly in a place like North Korea where access to the Internet is basically not available, uh, is do what we can to get into North Korea information on uh, thumb drives and uh, particularly through radio, uh, which is somewhat old-fashioned but still effective, so that there are alternative uh, information sources that are available to the people in North Korea. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. that's, very, that's very interesting. Yeah, the, uh, I went with President Clinton for nine days to China on his trip in 1998, and we did one public event, he and I, the president and I, in an internet cafe, and the president said, well, if in addition to the Chinese-controlled uh, government press, you wanted to get additional information about the trip that I'm making to the country, where would you go? And then these three very, 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 very smart Beijing University students, they had a conversation, and then you could hear one of them go, but President Clinton, President Clinton. So all of a sudden, they're going to their keyboard, and up comes ABC News, Clinton visits Beijing. You know? <laughs> Not possible in North Korea. Not in North Korea. Thank you all very much for your great testimony. Thanks, Sir Markey. Uh, a couple questions. Uh, Mr. Ebert, you mentioned in your... In your comments as well, that uh, perhaps the new administration is trying to mend fences uh, with uh, some of our treaty allies uh, in Southeast Asia, but yet we know the extrajudicial killings that have taken place in the Philippines uh, create a very significant obstacle uh, for, for the United States and for uh, a nation that wishes to respect human rights, as we do, uh, and the challenge that presents us and how to deal with the Philippines how do we address uh, extrajudicial killings in Philippines, violations of human rights, and what's occurring in Philippines? You know, this was tried by Ambassador Goldberg <laughs> last year and uh, uh, also by President Obama on a few occasions, and they got dinged really badly back by uh, Duterte. It's, it's, it's a tough situation. He doesn't take criticism. Uh, although uh, I talked recently to the current ambassador, Sung Kim, and he says you can talk to him privately, but he does not want to hear about this stuff publicly. 
Um, and so, you know, maybe you have to keep talking privately at a time when, uh, obviously, you know, Duterte, he gets elected, he hears the criticism from the United States, he calls the president all kinds of nasty names, and, and then goes to Beijing and said, I'm going to separate from the United States, which is a bit of a, it's for our treaty ally to say that to the United States in Beijing is pretty tough news. And then on top of that, in mid-May, he gets a new war in Mindanao where the Islamic radicals took over, militants took over, um, took over a city, a small, medium-sized city. So the U.S. has, it has challenges. What they, it had when working with the previous Aquino government on the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement to give the U.S. access to bases that would help them to be able to provide some maritime domain awareness about what China's up to in the South China Sea. You have this crisis in, in, in Mindanao where we tried peace a couple of years ago. It didn't work, and now, now you have a suddenly war breaking out uh, in, uh, again, and a lot of the, peop- the young f- soldiers that were in the MLF that were in the peace process suddenly saying, well, you're not getting us, and there's no peace dividend for us, so, like, what the heck? And this could, we're now starting getting external fighters from Indonesia, Malaysia, people coming from Iraq and Syria, and so you're got a, you have a situation that's quite dangerous, and so the U.S., this is the tension that we were, you were asking about, how do you balance human rights versus versus security and concerns. And uh, I think we we need to keep trying to talk to President Duterte. We've got to recognize he's only got four, five more years in office. There will be a transition. We have to keep uh, – we can't just isolate the whole country, I think, because of him. The, uh, the military, as I was alluding to in my references to Leahy, the military is still roughly – minding its P's and Q's, following uh, general, you know, rules that we could accept of engagement. And it uh, it, um, uh, is not doing the human rights violations. I think we have to, this is a walk and chew gum kind of a situation where we try to keep pressure on, but we can only do so much in the the larger context of a guy who's very mercurial and uh, we have other issues. Uh, This is one that we've been struggling with a lot, and I don't know how you go how you go deeper with him when he can't take criticism at all. If I could just add one thing. He's not just mercurial, he's very popular at home, which even complicates it further. If you're thinking about popular opinion and, you know, democracy and the rest, I mean, human rights are human rights, and they're inviolable regardless if it's supported by majority of people. But it's much more difficult when someone feels politically he's getting advantaged by, or at least no disadvantage from doing this. Uh, And people even support him for his strong hand. Ambassador King, would you like to address uh, anything in the Philippines or? Not really. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I do want to follow up, though, on, on this uh, talk about communication within North Korea. The North Korea Sanctions Act that this Congress passed, uh, last Congress, uh, dedic- authorized additional dollars to go toward uh, finding new ways to communicate, trying to reach out to uh, the people of North Korea. Uh, those grants have been put forward, they've been authorized, uh, appropriated. What, what, are, are, is that effective? I mean, uh, we've talked about some of the programming that's taking place so where they're making sort of like reality TV shows about North Koreans, defectors living in South Korea, living in the United States, what that's like, what it means. 
Uh, is, is there a more effective way? What are we hearing from defectors? Is there a new technology that we ought to be thinking about that we could utilize? Or is it radio and thumb drives still? Uh, is there a, a additional avenue? Are there additional avenues for communication? Uh, radios and thumb drives are still one of the key elements in terms of that. Uh, there's a real effort to, to try to use... Uh, programs that will reach out and that will provide opportunities for getting information in. Uh, it's not easy. The North Koreans are very savvy on cyber uh, issues. And uh, s uh, the cell phones in North Korea are incredibly difficult to use, to use illegally. You can't make calls outside of the country on the phones. There is no access to the Internet inside North Korea. There is an intranet, which is basically state propaganda. So it's it's a very difficult kind of kind of process. In spite of that fact, people are interested in knowing what's going on elsewhere. Uh, people do watch South Korean films. South Korean films are very popular in North Korea. South Korean soap operas, uh, they're popular all over Asia, and they are very popular in North Korea. So there is information getting in. We just need to continue to work at it. We need to continue to probe. It's not a cheap process. And it needs to, we need to continue to support those efforts to see that that happens. Uh, the, you mentioned uh, questions about uh, life of defectors and how that affects what's going on. Uh, based on uh, polling of defectors from North Korea and also people who are temporarily in China who are willing to talk uh, to people they don't know or tallying results, uh, indicate that there is great interest in life of defectors in South Korea and in the United States. And so, I mean, the, the programs are geared to the kinds of things that North Koreans are interested in. And I think they've had some success in terms of dealing with that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and uh, Senator Mark, I don't know if you had any questions or if you wanted to continue um, the conversation. No, I'm fine. Okay. Um, I, I do think it's important, as we talked about Senator Markey's uh, last question, when he talked about U.S. engagement and concerns over uh, U.S. withdrawal. Uh, all of us, I believe, supported uh, the previous administration's uh, you know, stated objectives of a rebalance or pivot, whatever word uh, they wanted to use. But what we've lacked in this country, I believe, is a long-term strategy uh, when it comes to Asia. It's something that exceeds a, a four-year or eight-year term of a president. And so what we're trying to develop, and with your help, we will develop uh, that policy through ARIA, the Asia Reassurance Initiative, that really does place uh, U.S. interests uh, back into uh, play in the region uh, because of nations, uh, as you've described, that are desperately looking for that partnership with the United States, desperately looking for somebody other than China whose, uh, whose, whose rules and norms uh, are not in the interest that they want to pursue uh, for trade, for security. Uh, for democracy. So um, as we look at ways to strengthen the rule of law and democracy, uh, this, this information has been invaluable and I appreciate it, but know that that's the entire purpose of these hearings, is to, to pass legislation, put it in law, that develops uh, 10, 20 more years of strategy, presence, leadership in Asia. Now's our chance in an area of the world that has uh, growing populations, growing economic uh, uh, power, and something that we cannot uh, cannot turn our backs on. So, uh, Senator Markey, thank you. Very yes, please, please. If you, if you don't mind, Mr. Please. just one more question. It's only on this question of extrajudicial killings in the Philippines and uh, who they are and uh, what their funding sources 
uh, are and whether or not American cutoff of security assistance targeted at the groups that are engaged in the extrajudicial killings uh, and those that are responsible for capturing vigilantes but are not doing so. Uh, is there a role that the U.S. can play in trying to at least specifically target those funds that we provide to the Philippine government as a carefully calibrated attempt to uh, impact uh, that kind of conduct that we're unhappy with. Does anyone have a, a recommendation? Well, probably about a, a third or so or 40% of the killings are by the police, and then about 60% or so, I haven't calculated exactly, but around that are are uh, done by these vigilante groups who yeah. they'd be very hard to, you know, they're just freelancing. On the police, the U.S. has at least once in recent months uh, stopped the sale of, of weaponry, of guns. And, uh, you know, obviously that whole, that whole uh, uh, the, the providing a weaponry would be something that we could look at. So what, and there what might be also... The, what, what part of the Philippine security apparatus is actually implicated? In the vigilante, the, the national killings. police. Oh, yeah. the vi vigilantes. Oh boy, they're uh, and no, I'm failing to pursue. That no, is inside of the government. There's obviously a failure to pursue these vigilantes. Right. So, what part of the security apparatus inside of that, inside of the Philippines, uh, is actually uh, turning a blind eye to the vigilantes? Are basically part and parcel of the problem. It is the police that are turning a blind eye. And just letting these guys operate because they sort of um, doing their their work for them with, without mm -hmm. getting their hands dirty. Mm -hmm. But I think there would be thing you know cutting off obviously cutting off uh, provision of equipment to the police might be one thing. The other, uh, but but looking for ways maybe in, uh, to, uh, and I'm not sure to what extent the government is open to this. They took some aid from the Chinese to set up set up uh, a detox camps for 10,000 people at a time, but they're, it's kind of ironic that the, the, most of the drugs that are coming to the Philippines are from China. If China just cut off the, uh, off the supply, it might help. But maybe there would be ways to, to you know, do, I know that's happening already, but to do more of the sort of showing what other alternatives there are for dealing with drug addicts and rather than just, you know, gunning them down on the side of the road and claiming they were a drug dealer or addict, mm -hmm. might be, um, you know, might, there might be, there would be some openness to that, but we've had, we had the Senator DeLima, uh, who, former uh, justice minister who has taken on uh, Duterte on this, and uh, she doesn't sit quite as comfortably as, as you guys, with all due respect to, she's sitting in prison because she criticized him too much and he just found ways to get rid of her. Uh, so... Um, uh, it's, so it's tough, but I think there are, we could probably find ways to offer some alternatives for dealing with drug addicts. Yeah, well, you know, you raised the China question. They're the source of fentanyl in the United States, and that's going to wind up in Massachusetts. That's now killing 75% of our, of our uh, uh, opiate overdose, you know, victims, and that comes right out of China. And it'll be two-thirds to three-quarters of all of Americans and another very brief period of time will be dying from that, and that's a Chinese issue as well. So you're right. The Chinese have, a, have an ability to kind of control that spigot to a very large extent in an authoritarian country, and they're not doing so. So I thank you for pointing out that issue in the Philippines as well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
Thank you, and uh, thanks to everyone for attending today's hearing, to the witnesses for, for providing your testimony. This is the homework assignment. Uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. I just ask you kindly uh, to respond to those questions as quickly as possible so that they can be made a part of the record. Uh, and uh, again, thanks to all of you for being here, and this committee is now adjourned. <laughs>